our 230 unit in Huntsville, Alabama, which we want to do maybe potentially deconstruct today and debrief on some of the issues that went on. This is happens on any every project, but I just thought it'd be make for some good education and top and and for listeners out there learning a little bit more, you know, exactly what we deal with. And maybe it might allow you folks to have a little bit more keen eye due diligence. I think what I see a lot of times is investors when they do quote unquote due diligence, they look at the completely wrong stuff. <laughs> I'm like, or do you do the syndication e-course that we have? And I think that will highlight the big things like what is the reversion cap rate, for example. Whereas development deals, in a way, they're underwritten a little bit easier, I think, right? What are you building it for? Then what are you selling it for? And are they by past projects? And are the sales verified by the last sales out there, the sales comps? It's pretty simple. It's actually, I think, a little bit easier than taking over existing infrastructure with a lot of unknowns with deferred maintenance items and operation expenses that could go up and down on you. But Greg, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit of your background. We're the PE engineering buddy. You got a lot of engineers out yeah. in the crowd today. That's great. That's great. Well, good to see you again, Lane. So really my background, I started in development about 25 years ago. I came through the engineering world. I'm a registered professional engineer done a lot of work for big companies, done some a lot of government work. Really, my background started off in my career as a design engineer. So most of the work that I did was doing structural engineering, civil engineering, dealing with cities, dealing with municipalities, working the horizontal development side first, and then working on the vertical side. As a structural engineer, I did both consulting as well as design work. And then really, that's how I got into it. And then from that experience, learning how things really mess up in development, I decided that I wanted to start a company after working for a big development company from, the, from a standpoint of really wanting to mitigate those risks, which is what we're going to talk about today, learning what not to do. And my consulting experience has been on fixing problems, just exactly what you said with existing properties the things that you don't know that you have to go in and fix. Hey, if we know those things on the front end, on the development side, let's look at those and try and mitigate those issues when you're starting. When you have a blank sheet of paper and you're doing ground up development, let's take a lot of those lessons learned and let's move them into the development realm once we start going ground up. And so that's really my experience is doing consulting work and then working for a large development company, trying to mitigate those risks. Yeah. And I'd like to understand a little bit more on the career progression of somebody in your shoes, because a lot of the investors are landlords and I think they, a property management role, property manager is very much like an entry-level position. You don't need to go to college. You, you, As long as you have some initiative, you can and take care of problems and have somewhat problem-solving skills, you can do what a property manager can do. Of course, the commercial property managers take it to another level. But for your kind of role in these projects, like you said, you started as a design engineer, right? How, how long do you do that? And then what role do you progress to later? And how long does it take? It's like we have a lot of CPAs. They always say you start off four years doing this, six years doing that. How does that kind of work? Just so you know, people understand that, you know. Yeah. 
So it was very important for me, once I finished my school, my college, I wanted to go and become a registered professional engineer. So that takes five and a half years of doing intensive design work. And so understanding from a code related standpoint, going through the design and working with the designers, working with the architects to actually build something. And so the key, what I really learned is when something gets messed up and the contractor calls you up on the phone and he says, hey, Greg, I need you to come out here. Your, your beam is not lining up with your column. Okay. That's where you learn something. And then you tell your boss as you're walking out, hey, I think I'm going to skip lunch today. And you go out to the construction site and you actually solve the problem. So my background was really for the first five, six years doing a lot of design work and then taking that design experience and for the next five to seven years doing a lot of consulting work where I would fix problems exactly where beams and columns weren't lining up and figuring out, hey, what went wrong? Where did the communication gap happen between the architect and me and the engineering team, whether it's a mechanical engineer or what I was doing, there's always an information gap. The key to development in most things in life is communication and making sure that disparate parties on a development deal are talking to each other. And so after going through that experience for about 12, 14 years as a design engineer and a consultant, I got an opportunity to work for a large development firm in the Dallas area, a huge national REIT. And it was amazing. It was, this was back in 2006, 2007 when grew on trees. And I had plenty of opportunities to go and do development. And literally, uh, we just had so much money coming in. They said, hey, we need you to go develop. So we, my job was to go and develop office buildings in Houston. And so I spent most of my time, three, four days a week down in Houston, where we developed three office buildings, three, three 400,000 square foot office buildings. And really, that's where I learned the development side, the financial modeling, all the things that you have to do to be a developer. I had already gotten the engineering side. Normally, when you're on a when you're a developer, you do the financial side, the CPA, that those types of things, just like you're talking about, and not so much the engineering side. And I think that's what makes my experience unique is that I did the hard engineering stuff first and then learned the financial modeling and, and learned all the business side of development. And so because of that, I understand the problems. When you look at a, when you look at a development deal, you realize, hey, these are the gotchas that you got to watch out for because I've already lived it. And so that to me was the key is really having that engineering and the financial experience. Part of working for the large development firm back in 2008, as we all remember, the market changed dramatically. And so we had the great financial crisis. And guess what? I had to go work in property management. And I can tell you, just like you said, Lane, I learned so much about the development business on the property management side. And so looking at the problems from an operational standpoint, as well as an initial development side, that just added to the education. And so I think those factors are critical. You've got to have the operational side, you got to have the financial side, and you got to have the engineering side. So it's been a really good opportunity for me to learn really over the last 20, 25 years. Yeah, and I think for people who aren't in the engineering field and push their children into the engineering field, like question why you'd want to do that. I mean, everybody knows I was an engineer, but I was always on the owner's side, the project management side. I didn't have the background that Greg had 
the technical background, which is when he when he says design, right? Those are like, if you think of very technical position, staring at CAD screens all day long, which requires you to have that technical information to go now go toe to toe with your contractor or owner down the road in to fight the changeovers in the future. That's that technical expertise you need. But if you see, watch how Craig progressed in his career, right? It's that technical part first. Many engineers never have the skill sets, the people skills to progress past that, nor the business aptitude to get past that. I guess, I don't know if I told you this, Greg, but yeah, I was never, I never could do anything engineering wise in college, you know, all those hard problems, which is why I went straight into project management and supervising people on the railroad, which is why I was the owner's rep. So it's funny. We find ourselves in the owner's rep position these days which now with Chase Creek completed, we wanted to open up the books to you guys in a way. And we have seven issues that we want to just go over that we make great speaking points. Hopefully it doesn't make great cringe. This first one actually will make me cringe because this first one we're talking about is lumber price increases. So if you remember back in 2020, or maybe people forget, right? Some people have such a short uh, memory. But it, other than the pandemic, people started to do work on their houses and there was this big supply chain crisis. People probably forget that too, but lumber spiked 3X. And this obviously threw a monkey wrench in our budgets. But yeah, Greg, how did we solve that one, man? <laughs> oh, so when we went to contract with our general contractor in 2020, I believe it was 2020, they would not sign a contract for all of the lumber. So we had to purchase the lumber in tranches, in, in three separate tranches, and because they didn't want to take the risk of the price increases. So the prices went up to about $1,700 a thousand board feet. Right now, just to give you an idea, it's about $380 a thousand board feet, significant price increases. So we we had to look at that and say, okay, we want to minimize the damage as much as we possibly can, but it was really difficult. And so ultimately that was just a 13% increase to the GMP pricing. When I say GMP, I mean guaranteed maximum price. We just had to eat it. The contractor was not willing to take that risk on. And that was just something that was a market risk. And that was generated based, basically through the pandemic and through the, all the supply chain issues. A lot of the lumber mills shut down in the Northwest. They just because of the pandemic, they just shut down. And so you had a lot of demand, a lot of people working on their house, building a deck because they couldn't leave their house. And the lumber prices shot up five, six X. So yeah, it was a very tough, tough deal. Yeah. And normally when you create those kinds of contracts, I would say, I don't know what's a good percentage mix between people doing guarantee maximum price contract and your kind of standard line item, pay, paper, paper unit. But like Greg said, the contractor typically will never lock in those types of prices. It's out of their control. And in a way, it's unfair for them to do that. But so if you really want to do it, they'll give you a really highball price, effectively not really deter you from doing it. But I guess industry-wide, Greg, like how many people are doing GMP, guarantee maximum price contracts versus just the standard? 
Yeah, there's typical ways you can do it. A guaranteed maximum price is, it's a great name, but the reality is if you have an approved change order, it's going to increase the price. So it's a guaranteed maximum price, assuming there are no change orders. And so a change order is generated if there is a gap in the design. And so that's really an issue that the contractor has a right to get a higher price because there was either an owner change or there was a design mess up or something like that. So most of the time when you sign a guaranteed maximum price, it's a guaranteed maximum price. And the contractor does not have a right to add any additional costs unless it is through the the, contra the contractual change order process. And so we try obviously to minimize that, but you're going to have some of that. And the lumber, the contractor was very open. They just said, hey, we cannot guarantee the pricing of this because it's all over the board. And so yeah. we had to purchase three tranches of lumber at three different price points when the highest was 1700 We bought it at the exact wrong time. And so unfortunately, when the contractor needs lumber, you got to buy lumber. You don't have that option because you do not want to stall the project because you have interest, daily interest that you have to pay at the end of the project. And so we couldn't wait. We needed to buy it right then and there. And you had to buy it at the spot price. And so normally you want to try and minimize, which is what we're doing on our other developments. We're trying to minimize our exposure. And so we look at the beginning of the project and we look at the buyout log and we say, okay, what items are bought out? 100% bought out. And so we try to minimize the list to very minor items that maybe aren't bought out yet. And so lumber obviously was a major item. On future deals, we've already purchased that out. There's no guarantee, there, there's no price increase for those because we thought about that up front. And so everybody feels confident in the market that we can achieve those prices. And changes is one of our primary responsibilities to manage. I have this funny image on the screen here, the original contract being the little boat, but the big yacht is the change order. This is a very famous meme that people in our industry will refer back to. A change order is a change in unforeseen conditions, right? So when you go out and you bid a project, you ideally want to take the contractors out there and show them everything that is that they need to do on the project. Some contractors are a little tricky and don't look at things and don't ask the right questions so that they know they can hit it, hit you at the end of the day. So that's where a, an experienced group like ours, like we know those tricks and games that they'll play and we'll throw that into the bid documents and the contract so they don't pull that nonsense on us down the road. Yeah, that, that's very important. A guaranteed maximum price contract has a lot of protections in it, just to exactly what you're saying, Lane. A stipulated sum contract where you try and bid out your set of drawings and have every contractor give you the lowest price. When you create a contract like that, they are incentivized. The contractors are incentivized to look for change orders. And when you look for something, you generally find it. So the way we structure contracts is we want to have a guaranteed maximum price with a saving split so that the general contractor says, hey, you know what? I want to work with you, not against you to find, to, to try and minimize change orders. That's in everybody's best interest. So they're not looking to find extra gotchas in the contract or in the contract documents or the design documents. 
they want to work with you because they get a share of the pie at the end. And that's what we want. We want to incentivize them to save us money and they get to participate in that savings. And there's a different standard in every jurisdiction you're in. I can only speak to when I was in Washington using the WashDOT standard specs. I believe it was like a 90 or like a 10% cost savings split with them. There's usually some kind of standard percentage that's within the jurisdiction since we work in multiple jurisdictions, aligning ourselves with whatever's the customary in that local areas, but it doesn't really spread too much. Yeah, closing out the lumber, there was a lot of, there were a few strategic conversations that we had on, hey, do we buy the lumber now? Do we wait? Yeah, that was a tough thing to get over. I don't think we'll see those types of fluctuations in prices, but we kept things light. I know I texted you this photo. <laughs> yeah, we're not seeing that with lumber now. In fact, lumber's prices are dropping. A lot of material prices are dropping. So there's a guy I listen to quite a bit on the internet. He's called the Uneducated, uneducated Economist. Oh, I listen to that guy too, right? He just sits he's in great. his car. Yeah. Yep. He's great. Yeah. And he will tell you right now, building prices are coming down with the exception of mechanical equipment, electrical pan and electrical equipment. That stuff is still really, there's supply chain issues with that. That's still has yet to come down, but lumber and a lot of the building insulation, things like that price is actually coming down. So it's a good time to start building with yeah. the exception of interest rates. Now, now we're recording us and what is this? May? May of 2023. Exactly to Greg's point. This is like, you know, ITR report that I was looking at recently. And with the capital, people not being able to acquire loans and things are uncertain in the economy, you have a lot of low demand for these building projects. So this is exactly why we try to capitalize on this. These are the single unit housing starts, which includes apartments, um, but this is when it goes to construction. So it, you use this to, number one, predict your competition of buying these building materials when you are, but also when we have a build period of a year and a half, two years, we can see what's going to market and competing at the same time as us. So this is exactly why I think it, when I think of that quote when, from Warren Buffett, when people are fearful don't you know, be greedy, right? Right now there's fear, which is the time where you need to be getting out. You don't want to wait till 2024, 25 to when you hit this higher end of this curve. But, but yeah, wrapping up lumber, anything else there, Greg, before we move on to number two? Lumber, yeah, lumber was really the killer. That There was two main killers and lumber was one. And we'll talk about the other one, but yeah, yeah that, that was the one that the lumber added 13, 14% to our guaranteed maximum price. Which is, yeah. yeah. I will say to round out lumber, we did have an overrun, but we covered it as the GP. I think that's how we ultimately, we, we had buffer. It was just unprecedented, right? But that's where we, as the GP come in, as we have in many past projects, to account for that. And we put in a little loan and we got over it. And then when we refinanced shortly thereafter, we recouped our loan. But the investors' capital, the common equity, they were pretty much sheltered. And you guys can thank us for that later. But hopefully you don't take us to a nice expensive place like Home Depot, like that <laughs> gentleman did. But that leads us to number two. Because of this lumber was so damn expensive, it became a little bit of a security factor keeping this expensive material around. 
Yeah, we had to hire extra security. We had two on-site security cameras. We did not hire a German Shepherd dog to watch the site. We were advised not to do that, but we had two cameras and we spent extra money. I think it was $4,000, $5,000 a month extra just for security. So lumber was like sticks of gold out there. So we just had to watch it 24 hours a day. We had a couple of incidents where we thought somebody had taken some of the lumber. Turns out it was a subcontractor and everything was fine, but we still had to spend a lot of time and effort just going through that and making sure that our site was secure. So on our next project, we have a fence that's a secured locked fence on site for all of our lumber. And so that's something I think going forward, even though lumber is you know, $400 a thousand board feet, we still want to protect it and make sure it's secure. Yeah, maybe let's dig into this a little bit more deeper. In my past projects, uh, generally the contractor owns the final project product, which includes it's their response. If something happens, like a fire, which we'll talk about in number five here later, or somebody steals the materials, whether the, that's the nails or the lumber, um, they're liable for it per the contract. They own the final product to deliver the final product. But there is a, there's a gray area in there that I got burned on in my past professional career where the owner, remember I was the owner's rep, right? If I did, they're, sure, that's the case of a contractor's hurting for money, which is another reason why you go and bonded and licensed and with these bigger contractors, not these smaller, smaller outfits, but you, where you, the smaller outfits will play games like that, but bigger ones that we'll use won't. But even that said, if a contractor's hurting, they may start to play the fine lines with, oh, the owner didn't supply me with this, or they're you know, just some way to pin it back on the owner, which is why we had to come up with ways to, I, I, what was the words that I used, right? Like, hey, let's just do our, if anything were to happen, we as the owners did our part. We CYA ourselves there. Um, And anything you want to add on this particular project or past projects? Yeah, we had 10 years ago, we had issue with copper. Copper pricing was crazy. And so we had to secure sites. I literally worked on a project that uh, it was on the news at two o'clock in the morning. Somebody was running through our building on the 13th, 14th floor at night. And we did hire dogs and the dogs were chasing them. And it was on the national news. And they were stealing copper out of our air conditioning units. So ultimately, the bill does come back to a certain extent to the owner. I can tell you this, on, on our Chase Creek project, the lumber costs were an extra $4 million. So for us to spend $4,500, $5,000 a month for eight, nine months, we'll do that. Because with the kind of pricing that lumber was, we wanted to make sure that the site was secure And ultimately, because the lumber was purchased in tranches, the contractor wasn't willing to take the risk on the front end. And so we needed to split that risk up a little bit. And yeah, it is a gray area for sure. But it's for the kind of money that we spent to get the lumber on site, we were going to secure it. Yeah, it was very important. I know like in in past when I had my machinery and equipment in shady areas, we would just spend the $10,000 to get one or two rent the cops out there. They don't do anything. They don't have guns or maybe they have tasers today, but it's just another party to sue or reclaim the money or something as owners that we paid over and beyond our contract 
to supply the adequate, maybe, I don't know what the word is, safe working conditions or secure site. But well, why not the dogs? That's Dog, Dogs can bite people. And there's just, it's kind of like putting a sign up saying, beware of dog. And when you do that, you basically admit liability. And so people are going away from that. The project that I was talking about where they were stealing the copper, that was 10 years ago. And so it was a little bit more favorable back then to have dogs on your site, but not so much now. It just didn't make sense. So there's just yeah. additional liability that's not worth it. That's messed up about like in San Francisco, where a lot of our investors will live, like all those stores are closing uh-huh. and they don't tell the, they tell their employees do not engage, which is just like a CYA thing in their SOP handbook. So they don't get sued. And, but that's yeah, sad. It's the same thing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Neighborhood issues, threats of physical violence. So I guess what we're talking about here is you know, people in the area, you know, we always try and go into places where we have the general consensus. People want the development, especially with the city board and municipality, but you're always going to have that one random person in the woods, right? Yeah. In the woods. Yeah. We had a, we had a neighbor right next to our site and he was not very happy that there was a large development. And I don't think it mattered that it was multifamily or anything. He was not very happy that there was a development next to his site for a number of reasons. And one of them we believe is that when you develop, you drive the prices of the valuations of the adjacent properties up a little bit as well for tax reasons and things like valuation reasons. And so this particular person was an elderly gentleman that I think he owned the house outright. It was his mother's house, something like that. He just didn't want to pay additional taxes, which I understand, but he really crossed the line. He went over to our site and threatened our general contractor with physical violence. So we had some issues that we had to make sure and cover ourselves legally. And obviously we didn't want our general contractor to work in an unsafe environment. But yeah, we had some issues with our neighbor. And so you're going to have some of those types of things politically, legally, that when you do development, those are some of the issues that you have. And everybody thinks, gosh, it's great to add value to the land, even to the adjacent land. Yeah, but then cities tax you for that ad valorem. And so we we just had to deal with our neighbor. And it was a few months of some tough discussions for sure. Yeah, yeah. they would come on the work site and just be around. So changes were made and the, a lot of this, the general contractor takes over under their jurisdiction. But I would say like there's two levels of these types of nuisances. You're always going to have opposition. But I think on our scale, we fly under the radar a little bit. Like I was doing larger construction. And I think on your larger projects, you probably saw this too. Like when I was, when I was working for the big bad railroad, Everybody hated the railroad, right? And then now you're dealing with these larger, the, I don't know, the PETA people or like environmentalists. They'll do very vindictive things and they have a lot of lawyers to power them. They'll put like a 1940s Coke can in there and say, oh, that's historical now or saber tooth tiger husk in there. It's, oh, there's whatever, just to halt, they'll halt construction. But I think we're maybe fortunate, right? We don't really deal with that too much on like fly another radar, like I said. Yeah. And we're providing something that is in demand right now, affordable housing, workforce housing. 
it's hard to really mount a opposition to that when you're trying to do something that's really nice, really clean, and you're providing lower cost housing for folks. It's hard to have an argument against that. So it's good to be developing the right things as well. There's always going to be opposition. When you're developing a large building, generally in an urban context, you're going to have a lot of building owners that are okay, that they want you to build that because it adds value to their real estate. It's different when you have a homeowner and certainly somebody in that situation who may not necessarily want that development. So you're going to get some of that pushback for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think like the dealing, we're talking about more here is dealing with individuals, but normally we have the trade winds of the jurisdiction and the municipality, the city, behind our back the next one number four here the city the civil engineer improper staffing on our project yes that was very frustrating for me personally being a professional engineer and going through the design process and we knew at the beginning when they first came out with their drawings we raised our hand and we said hey we think these slabs are a little bit too low and that was just an issue that we had to work through. It's always, the issue is really the, the building slabs versus the parking lots. There has to be enough of a separation between those two, especially on a Chase Creek site where we were building on a slope. And so you want to have obviously enough space between the building slab elevation and the parking lots, because that's where the water goes. And so initially we thought the slabs were a little bit too low and we raised our hand and by the time that they really understood the implications of their design, we had to lower the parking lot in certain areas because of that. And it was an added cost for us. And it was very frustrating. We went through a claims process with that engineer, went back to the contractual claims process that we could do. And we were able to get some money from them because they messed up. And the reason they messed up is because they did not adequately staff their, our project. Huntsville, as you guys know, is exploding. And so it's been great. And it's fantastic for our project, fantastic for the lease up. For economically, it's been good. That puts a strain on the local engineering and architectural teams and contractors because Huntsville is exploding. So they just didn't adequately staff our project. And they put a, it's called an EIT, engineer in training, not a PE on the project. And lo and behold, I think he was probably the smartest guy in the room. He left the company six months into it because he knew what was coming. And the guys that were running the, that particular branch in the office, they just didn't listen to us. And so we, which is why we had a claim because we yeah. told them ahead of time. And so, yeah, very frustrating. We mitigated that on our future projects. We're going to change our contract. And so that's, that was a lesson learned for everybody, but really it was just inadequate staff on their part. But in their defense, right, and we're talking about the civil engineering firm or architect that we're working with, which will always, Greg and I aren't sitting here designing stuff, in case you're wondering, but we hire third-party professionals in that area who have the relationships with municipalities, but also the stuff that Greg used to do in his 20s. Now, Greg's pay rate is too high for that type of stuff, but a lot of these civil engineering firms, and when I was working in that industry, 
it's just like any white collar profession out there. It's very hard for these civil engineering firms to find good talent. And especially in a civil engineering comparing to computer science engineering, civil engineering, like that poor guy who probably was put all this burden on him, barely made 60 grand or 80 grand a year, I bet. Maybe. Poor, yep, that's right. Poor guy. Yeah. I, I mean, I saw the same thing. This is years ago where you have the guy... I don't know what's that, what's their billable rates three hundred something an hour or I don't know I, I oh, no, that, that's the that would be the three hundred an hour would be project executive so yeah the staff engineers hundred twenty five hundred maybe but that's about it yeah of course like the guy takes almost a third of that most of that is other prac and other their benefit but yeah what you'll see what they should, probably should have had is a guy who is mid level doing this these checks. But because of staff shortages, it's the same thing with accountants and CPAs, right? Absolutely. Most of our, you investors out there are at least middle management. You know what this we're exactly what we're talking about. But how do they do it in the civil engineering world? Maybe the same thing how you guys do it in your industry. But they get rid of that expensive middle management guy because maybe partially do with demographics too, right? There's not many guys in their 40s to 55 ranges the high level and the new guys. I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. That was my personal theory. But for whatever what it was, it creates this situation where they, they're just trying to get the stuff done cheaper with younger talent. And of course, they justify it saying, yeah, we'll get the engineer and training in there and he'll learn how to do it or he'll mess it up. But that's not important to pass investors. That's just a little insight. And I think that's exactly why Greg and I are happy not to be in those engineering ranks anymore. But I think what where this is important for investors to understand is Greg and I just don't sit here. Like most people who are developers have no engineering background whatsoever. They just prance around, put around the white hard hat and raise capital. And they'd have no idea what the hell is in these drawings. And that's what you're seeing in a lot of these development projects out there that are floating around the internet. Sure, they hire professional third-party engineers like how we do, but I think the thing that we add in added value is we actually check this stuff. And Greg is a big stickler on that drainage thing. He's made me very aware of this type of stuff that now I'm finally aware of it. But it takes a Greg to see these things, actually look at the damn blueprints, and when you're going through a comment period, you put in a formal inquiry to your engineer. So now you have something to point to when you try and collect and sue them in effect. In my past professional career, I never really had too much success suing civil engineers. Usually you go after the contractors, right? Because the civil engineers are always very squirrely in a way. And typically you do many projects with them. You build a relationship, you trade it out in the future, or at least that's how we did it. But like that, but that's, I think that's where that was a key catch by Greg, right? Yeah. This stuff isn't going to work. Are you sure? Civil engineer said, yes, it's going to work. All right. We're going to put a minimum of understanding or notate it. So when this thing doesn't work, y'all going to pay for the engineering rewrite and the cost to, to remediate it in the field. Yeah. The issue with civil engineers that it's very difficult because the way they their insurance works is you have to prove gross negligence. And basically, 
for your attorneys out there, gross negligence is a very high standard. And so to be grossly negligent, you almost have to commit fraud or some type of significant medical malpractice, egregious. There, there has to be something that's pretty high. And so most of the time, a faulty design does not meet the standards of gross negligence. And so really, you can go back contractually to negligence. And negligence is basically, hey, we'll give you our feedback. That's, that's how those civil engineering firms, architectural firms, can stay in business because they limit their liability. Their LOL in their contract is extremely tight. And if you look at it the other way, they have no assets. So they're not like a big general contractor where they have a bunch of assets. Design firms have computers, they have chairs, desks, really not a lot of things to go after. So it, it doesn't make sense to, from a contractual standpoint, you're not going to get a lot out of them. And so at the end of the day, they're going to rely, they're going to go back to the contract and say, hey, this is our limitation of liability. We were not grossly negligent. We were negligent. We get it. And there was really no fight for them. They knew that they messed up, but we couldn't prove gross negligence. And believe me, I tried, <laughs> but we got there. We basically got their feedback is what happened. Moving on. Yeah. So fire lightning strike. Why don't you describe this one while I get the video going? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So I was in on vacation, a little week long or week long. I wish it was a week. Three day vacation with my wife. I get a call from the general contractor at four o'clock on Saturday in Lake Tahoe. And he said, hey, our building, building six was just hit with a lightning strike and there is a raging fire. And the video that Lane is showing is what the contractor sent me on my phone. That's how my that's how my first day of vacation went when I saw that. Not good. Ultimately, we we got an insurance claim for everything, which is wonderful. The insurance company, the Builders Risk Insurance Company, really stepped up. And it's funny, even after 20 years of development, I've never really had to make a major builders risk claim until this project. And now, whenever we go vertical before the first stud is placed vertically, I call the insurance broker and say, okay, before we start, are we good? <laughs> Send me an email to make sure that our policy is good to go. And this experience has really taught me a lesson that you just, that's part of development. You just never know what can happen. So we had to vet to make sure all the subcontractors, there was no issues with any of the subs, that they didn't start the fire. We had to prove that. But ultimately, there were lightning storms in the area, and it was pretty obvious that because um, the fire started the roof, and we could prove that. And there's another video that Lane is not showing, but it shows that the fire starts at the roof and goes down. So the fire started up high, which would be indicative of, a, of the lightning strike. So we felt pretty good about that. The insurance company did not fight us on that, and so it worked out. So we, we got paid back for everything that we needed, so that was, was a huge win. I have my theories, but maybe we'll, yeah. maybe if people want to learn more, they can come out, meet in person at our next retreat and ask us all about it. But yeah, we've, we've must've had at least maybe a dozen fires on past projects. That's why we have insurance for the projects that are have tenants in them, lost rents. So like a stop, stop the play, the clock starts ticking and the claim amount just starts ticking. We've gone through this 
quite a bit. If anything, it's just a nuisance where we have to wake up from our naps and get working on the claim and then readjust the contractor. But sometimes it can work out in your best favor, like offsides in football when the defense goes offsides and then now the quarterback has a free pass to the end zone, right? Yeah. Where you can get some other things repaired or fixed brand new. But in this case, this was really simple and clean. We didn't really, we didn't own the asset at this point. This all fell under the contractor's umbrella. So the contractor dealt with it which is another layer. People are always concerned about like liability or things like that. That's an extra layer that you have in development. Yep. Makes my life a lot easier. We didn't really have to get too much involved ourselves. We, we held the builder's risk policy. And so the builder's risk policy paid out to us, which is really important as the owner. Uh, to, it's better to control that policy. So the contractor, not that the contractors, our contractor is going to play games. When you work with big contractors, they have these blanket builders risk policies that they control. And so from previous experience, it's important for the owner to control that. So we did, we got paid out ahead of time and then we reimbursed the contractor based on the fact that the insurance company paid us. And one of the most important things is that no one was hurt, which is even the biggest part of all of that. There was no subs on, it was a Saturday. There were really no subcontractors working. So it was a, from that standpoint, a huge blessing that nobody got hurt. Next up, number six here, the city turn lane into our project caused some delays. So when you do, when you're adding value to property, then the name of the game for most municipalities is to make the private developer pay for your upgrades as much as you can. And so Old Gurley Road right next to our site was obviously with the fact that the multifamily development was moving in or being created, you're going to have a lot more residents, a lot more traffic on that road. So the city realized that, hey, this is in the path of development, which is obviously good for us. We want to make sure that road has ample capacity. So it was widened. And as part of our development, they forced us to put in a turn lane, which most of the time we don't really fight because it's a benefit to our residents and it's a benefit to the property. It reduces speeds and potentially reduces accidents and things like that. But the issue is the city controlled in their right of way, they controlled the access road the turn lane. And so it just took them forever to get their drawings out and their contractor to come out and do the work. We had to organize their contractor with our contractor to make sure it's the classic story, the bridge not lining up. We needed to make sure the bridge lined up. And so the city's contractor was working at a different pace than our contractor. And so they just caused a lot of issues with the design and some of the grading issues that we had to put in basically because of the city. And so really it just came down to a delay that we had to endure. Fortunately, we'll go to number seven. And so number six and number seven were concurrent delays. And so it wasn't as bad, but it still could have been an issue with the city. And as as a private developer, you can't fight city hall. And when they're going to get their road in, guess what? That's when you can open your project. We're, We're really under their guidelines to get it done. What are other things that in your past projects, maybe not Chase Creek, but like the city wanted or 
I know things I can think of is I've had projects where they want certain access for fire or trucks like that, which sometimes is a head scratcher because it's, dude, you guys have a volunteer fire department. You don't even have these bigger trucks. Why do you, why do you want it? But I don't know, things off the top of your head. A lot of this is just relationships with the locals, right? It is. And so the two big things really are a traffic light and then having two points of egress and ingress. So you can't just have one access point to your site. Obviously, if there's a fire or something else, you need to be able to get people out. Uh, so you need to have two points of ingress and egress. And so that's a big one. And then based on the traffic counts, no developer really wants to get a notice from the city saying, hey, you need to do a traffic impact analysis because that that gives them cause to go back and make you put in a traffic light. Traffic lights are $150,000, $200,000 that you didn't have in your budget. And of course, when you put in a traffic light, then you have to do an easement, then you got to get a survey, then you got to get a civil engineer, and all of that kind of compiles to where it potentially is a delay in the project. So the two big ones are the traffic light and then the ingress-egress. That's what I've seen on other projects for sure. And when I was with the city for a very short stand, I think like 18 months, they sometimes the city would like make, the city had would have to do it anyway, but they just get the local, the us to pay for it. Exactly. <laughs> There's a lot of those exactly. games being played. Yep. And then, so lastly here, utility transformers delayed late to our site due to supply chain issues. Yes. And then maybe also explain like, so people don't understand like utility companies is, is they think of them as like city government or like a pseudo government, but it is like a third party in itself, right? It is. And it is a pseudo government deal because the utility companies are offshoots of the government. So on our projects in Alabama, they call it an aid to construction cost. And so what that is a, an additional cost for the developer to pay that provides the electrical feeders around the site and the electrical transformers. So those are provided by the local utility, but the local, but the private developer has to pay for those. And so we paid for our transformers, but the utility company, Huntsville Utilities, took forever to get the actual transformers to our site. And so it took I want to say 12, 14 months extra of delay to get those things on site. And so that really caused us, if there was a delay in the project, and there was, obviously the fire delayed us, but the utility transformers really delayed us because that's your permanent power. You're not going to get a certificate of occupancy of any of the buildings until you get permanent power. And to get permanent power, you have to have a transformer. And so that really took a lot, a lot of time for us to get those transformers from the utility. And again, just like Lane said, it's really a quasi-government entity. They're not going to, they're not going to issue a certificate of occupancy. They're not going to help you in any way until you get that permanent power. And so we were backed up 12, 14 months from that. We ordered them on time and we were told <laughs> six months into it, hey, we're going to get those transformers when you guys are substantially complete with your first three buildings, it was three, four months later than that. And so that's something that we really had to overcome. And that was the fire plus the utility transformers. That was the, really the two big delays on our project for sure. And I think a lot of times investors will hear the term we 
a lot or my partners and I, and sure, a lot of times it's the contractors that we command, but I think that one was definitely your GP doing a lot of the legwork, doing the work that the engineers should have been doing, our employees should have been doing. Yeah, that was like a relationship thing, right? What was it? Donuts or chocolate sent to an officer? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We had everybody, we talked to the mayor, we talked to all kinds of folks to help us with Huntsville Utilities. We went up the chain, did whatever we could to get them to help us. And really, at the end of the day, even the mayor said, hey, I can't help you. It's These are coming from wherever they were coming from, and I just, I can't help you. So it was very frustrating. Yeah. Nobody moves like the general partnership who has skin in the game. Exactly. Maybe your first year working as a junior engineer, you would have hauled ass on that one, Greg. If you were the design engineer, yeah, you probably just another sticky note on your desk as exactly. you take it early quit on Friday. So we made it to our, through our official list. Do you have any bonus items here you want to talk about? We got, I think, about what, five more minutes left. Yeah. The only thing I really want to talk about is inflation works two ways, right? We were penalized for sure on the lumber side. And this kind of speaks to investing in real estate in general, especially multifamily, where you can have annual year-long leases that can be reset based on the market. Inflation works two ways. Yes, we got hurt on the front end with lumber pricing, inflation, supply chain issues, things like that. But we were also able to look at our rents and say, okay, on the positive side, inflation worked where we could add 15, 20% of our rental rates percentage-wise based on what we originally performed. So the good thing about in investing in real estate is that, especially multifamily, is that inflation works on both sides. And yes, we were penalized on the development side initially, but on the investment side, when it comes to looking at the rental rates, we have seen a bump in the rental rates because of that. So there's there's good and bad on both sides. Yeah, I think people just, it comes down to wealth comes to those people who create value. And in this case, take all these lumbers and sticks and nails and concrete and build houses in this arrangement. And you have to have faith that you will be rewarded by that. I think people out there buying stocks by by low, sell high, that's just trading. And when you develop and you take something to the maximum extent of the value creation, in a way, you just got to have faith that you're doing the best you can to maximize your return and create the most value, which in turn will be rewarded on the open market. Yeah. Yeah. And as part of our job as the GP is to look at the market, do the due diligence at the beginning. And so there's, (laughs) you guys don't know, there's plenty of opportunities that we look at and 90 to 95% of them don't work. And so we do a financial model. We look on the front end and if it makes sense, we continue to pursue it, but 90 to 95% of the deals don't work. And we want to make sure that ratio, we want to keep it that way. And so when we look at these projects, we want to make sure that they pencil out financially, begin with the, think about beginning with the end in mind. And and we really believe in that. And that's part of what our job is to look and see, okay, does this piece of land, if you add value to it, 
and you create an asset, will it be an income producing asset and hit the returns that we need to hit, especially nowadays, the market the way it is. And we want to make sure that we're adding value along the way. Each step of the, de of the development process is supposed to add value. And so that's really what our focus is for sure. Yeah, so what I'm going to do is for people listening to this is going to be put into the syndication e-course in the development section. We've got a whole bunch of other information for passive investors to go and read and educate yourselves. Um, this will just be put somewhere in here once it's edited up and put out. And if you guys want to see the finished product that we're talking about today, you guys can go on the YouTube channel and Huntsville 230 unit development showcase would probably be the best way to search for that particular video. But we recorded a previous video with Greg. I think it went out on the podcast last year in 2022. I forgot what we were talking about, Greg, but it was probably great. Something but, uh, about yeah. building something, I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah, if you guys have any questions on this stuff, please submit it over. I think hopefully what we did today maybe brought some new things to people's attentions and allow people to have a little bit more understanding into what you know, how to look at a development deal. I would say development deals are tricky. Like I think the biggest mistake I see passive investors getting into is a lot of these development deals are really pie in the sky, sexy, luxury type of developments. And it's just, a lot, that's why we stay in this workforce housing world, because we are operators first. So we're not distressed sellers by the time we finish developing it, like a lot of these other guys are. But yeah, a lot of those, I call them daisy chain deals out there. There's some kind of artist rendering of some kind of sexy building. A lot of that just is like kind of half-baked ideas and really frothy performance. How do you put a sales comp on like that type of building, right? Where the residential workforce housing world, it's a very, it's a, how should I say it, Greg? It's, there's a lot of units being traded. It's a very yeah. solid comp. Yeah, it's a liquid market for sure. Yeah, liquid market. Yep. But yeah, Greg, anything else you think we left out you want to throw in here at the end or... No, development is, is fabulous as far as the kind of returns that you can get, but you want to make sure that you have a development partner that understands the risks. And I think from the product that we're building, it's a very valuable, very needed product. And it, and I'm sure you guys have seen it. It's just, there's such a housing shortage and especially now with interest rates going up. A lot of folks can't afford mortgages. So the renting population is really going to increase. And so we just, we want to be there to capture that value. And uh, yeah, that's really a lot of fun. Let's if you guys it. want access to this syndication document, you guys can join the club, simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. And yeah, you can get to know each other. Bye.